This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. At Westminster Seminary, California, our primary mission is to prepare men for pastoral ministry. This has been our primary mission since 1980. We've graduated more than 1,100 students, and about 70% of which go on to pastoral ministry. Some of our earliest graduates have been preaching God's Word and visiting the sick and meeting with elders and doing the rest of the work of the ministry for more than 30 years. Dan Borvin is a 2011 graduate of Westminster Seminary, California. He's completing his DPhil in Historical Theology at Oxford University. He studied at the University of Geneva. He's licensed to preach in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and currently a ministerial intern in Merrimack Valley Orthodox Presbyterian Church in North Andover, Massachusetts, just about 30 miles north of Boston. He's married and has one child. Hi, Dan, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Great to be here. Congratulations on the birth of Helena. How old is she? She is four months old. Thank you. Yeah, well, and how is your new life, Dad? My new life has much less sleep than my old <laughs> life. I'm learning that the human body is capable of functioning on much less sleep than we previously thought, or I previously thought at least. But uh, besides that, it's tremendous. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing to have a covenant child in your house. And I bet you'll find it's uh, somewhat revolutionary. It really does change things. I think it actually changed my ministry considerably, changed the way that I teach and explain things. Just realizing, for example, how often one has to repeat things to children is a lesson that you know, in seminary, you think, well, you know, I've explained this. Now you get it and we'll go on to the next thing. When in fact, your children teach you that <laughs> you have to explain things many times. Yes, I'm actually looking forward to uh, when she's old enough, at least to understand me. That doesn't mean that I'm not trying to teach her already. Yeah. Uh, just the other day, I was reading some Luther, his commentary on Galatians, and I was holding my daughter and decided I should read out loud to her Luther's commentary on Galatians. She didn't seem quite as if she was tracking the whole way, maybe a little bit here and there, but uh, soon we hope she'll be able to understand the teaching and uh, grow up in the uh, fear and admonition of the Lord. I've also, not only reading her Luther on Galatians, we've already started catechizing her. Again, it's kind of one-sided. You know, I'm a little disappointed that she hasn't taken it to it at this stage, but we'll get there. Maybe by the time she's six months, she'll have at least the first 10 questions down. Tell us a little bit about your doctoral research. What are you working on and what is the project that you're completing, if you can tell us? I work on a French Reformed pastor and theologian named Pierre Dumoulin. He died in 1658. He was the main pastor at the French Reformed congregation just outside of Paris in the early 17th century. And he was basically the most well-known figure in the French Reformed churches at that time. He was very well-known internationally. He had studied in Cambridge, spent more time in England. He was one of the French delegates to the Synod of Dort. Had they not been barred from attending the Synod by the French king, he would have been a participant in the Synod. And he wrote many, many 
works during that period, many polemical works. He's probably best known for his polemical works against Roman Catholics, against Arminians, against Amaraldians. He was the main prosecutor, so to speak, against Amiro and the churches of Samor in the 1630s. So he was a very influential, very well-known figure in the Reformed world in the early 17th century. And I work on his treatise debates with a French cardinal named Cardinal Du Perron. Du Perron is famous for being credited with converting Henry IV, who was a Huguenot, was Reformed. And then famously, he said, Paris is worth a mass or allegedly said. He converted to Roman Catholicism in order to take the French crown. And Du Perron was the one who's credited with convincing him. <laughs> I don't know how persuasive Du Perron had to be. <laughs> he <laughs> held the crown in one hand and the Council of yeah. Trent in the other, but he gets the credit for bringing Henry IV into the mother church and leading France as the, the new Catholic king. So I work on their treatise debates over the historicity of the church, who is the true Catholic church, who gets the fathers, those sorts of things. What is it that attracted your attention to Dumoulin? Has he been neglected? Yes, I was uh, attracted to the French Reformed churches simply because in the English-speaking world, at least, they've been somewhat overlooked. The French Reformed churches are very, just a tremendous history they had. First of all, coming up, of course, in the 16th century with tremendous persecution, the French wars of religion, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Dumoulin actually was four years old in 1572 when the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre occurred. His father was a French Reformed minister, so he was on the hit list of the Catholic troops. And his father and his mother went one direction. They sent the two children in another direction. And by God's providence, Pierre Dumoulin was spared. But they come up in this period of turmoil, never able to rest, so to speak, in their worship in the Christian community. But then at the end of the 16th century in 1598, Henry IV actually, uh, to his credit, issued the Edict of Nantes, which gave the Reformed relative religious freedom. They weren't persecuted as they were before. So it's really under this period that the French Reformed churches flourished. In the early 17th century, they still had difficulties with the French crown, but the churches were very strong. One of the more Presbyterian of the Reformed churches, they didn't have bishops. They had a very well-organized Presbyterian government. One thing that uh, inspires me as well with the French Reformed churches is they were very ecumenical within the Reformed world. Possibly they were motivated for this by their persecution, by their left on their own in their own country. You know, they don't have much security in France, so they look to the other Reformed churches to be assisted, but also to assist them. So they're very much in contact with churches in the Netherlands in Germany, in England, in Scotland, and in the Swiss churches. So they had a, a very early impulse to be ecumenical within the Reformed churches. And that's why it was so grievous to the French Reformed churches that they couldn't send delegates to the International Synod of Dort. They were very excited to participate in this grand international synod, but were barred by the French king. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So Dumoulin is a major critic of Arminianism or the Remonstrant theology, as well as the Amaraldian theology. So he engaged two of the most important and greatest and perhaps in some ways most decisive controversies in the Reformed world in the 17th century. 
Yes, he very much played the role of the polemicist. He was kind of the go-to guy in the French Reformed churches when they had to answer something, whether it was Roman Catholicism, which he wrote many treatises, engaged in many public debates with Catholics. With the Arminian controversy, he fired off a fairly well-known treatise called The Anatomy of Arminianism. Is there anything of Dumoulin in English? And so that's a major treatise that is available. It's not in any modern form, is it, The Anatomy of Arminianism? I don't think it's been reprinted, but you can find many of his works in English on Google Books for free. Because he was so well-known internationally, many of his works were translated into English even in his own lifetime. So most of his major works are in English, and that's very valuable. When you were here as a student at Westminster Seminary, California, you did two degrees, right? If memory serves, you did the MA in historical theology. And before we move on, what was your MA thesis? I wrote on Faustus Socinus, the great uh, Unitarian heretic of the 16th century. And what attracted your attention to Socinus? You're not a Socinian, are you? Uh, no, uh, don't tell my presbytery. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, not at all. But first of all, I was attracted to the bad guy. The villains are always the most interesting in the story. You know, I kind of grew up on the Batman movies. And so the Joker or the Penguin was always the more interesting <laughs> than Batman. Batman's a little one dimensional, but the villain has layers. And so, so Sinus interested me. I kind of came to him, I think, through my study of the Anabaptists. He's kind of more of the um, one step above intellectually than the Anabaptists would be in the Radical Reformation. All of them, of course, we categorize in this broad category of the Radical Reformation. So Faustus Osinus is definitely in the intellectual elite of the Radical Reformation. And as I read more of him and uh, became more familiar with him, I really was struck by his hermeneutic, really, the way he interpreted Scripture, and more specifically, his almost woodenly literal hermeneutic. He had a very rationalistic, so to speak, hermeneutic. He didn't adopt a Reformed hermeneutic. He didn't understand sacramental language in Scripture. He took a very literalistic approach to Scripture, and this is what led him to his anti-Trinitarian theology. And that same hermeneutic I see in much of today's evangelicalism, a wooden literalism. By God's grace, most of modern evangelicals don't end up at the same conclusions of Socinus, thankfully, but the hermeneutic is very similar. And that was one of the things that was one of the greatest realizations that I came to in my study of Socinus is the similarity with many modern commentators. You anticipated my next question, so I appreciate that. How has your study of Dumoulin helped you understand contemporary evangelicalism or modern Christianity? Yes, I think the, as I said, the commitment to ecumenical activity within the Reformed world, seeing Dumoulin and the other uh, ministers in the French Reformed churches, they had no advantages that we have. They're communicating via letter, snail mail, with no real postal system. And yet they were more united internationally in many ways than we are today with all the technological advantages that we have. And yet we can't come together seemingly internationally, ecumenically, 
within the Reformed world. Of course, we have the International Council of Reformed Churches, and they do many great things. But compared to what happened in the 16th century, it was inspiring to me to do more ecumenically with our fellow Reformed churches, to be more engaged, to be more interested, to be more knowledgeable of what's happening around the world. That was a major inspiration I received from Dumoulin. Also, his commitment to polemics. Now, Dumoulin sometimes would shoot first, aim later in his approach to polemics. He might have fired off a few treatises a little too quickly, (laughs) wasn't always the most careful theologian or polemicist, but he certainly was willing. He might have been overly willing at times, might be too much of a pugilist, but it seems in our day, many in the broader Christian world, broader evangelical world, don't want to disagree about anything. We all just want to pretend that we're all on the same page, really, whether it's the issues of the sacraments or worship, so forth. And you've been involved in ecumenical work as well. I know that when you were in the UK, you were actively involved in the uh, Evangelical Presbyterian Church in England and Wales, and you were also a little bit involved with some of the nascent or emerging Reformed congregations, confessional Reformed congregations in Germany. Is that right? Yes. You know, informally, I'm not any denominational committees, but with personal relationships, yes. Many great friends in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of England and Wales, the International Presbyterian Church, which is in the UK and Europe, the Free Church of Scotland. I just preached a few weeks ago in Milan at the missionary work of the United Reformed Churches in North America, pastored by Andrea Ferrari. I've preached in Germany, good friends with Sebastian Heck in Heidelberg with Jiwon Park, a Westminster grad now who is uh, working on a church plant in Frankfurt, Germany. So very much informally, just with personal relationships, I've tried to carry on this ecumenical spirit that is really part and parcel of the Reformed churches, our our history, the Reformed tradition. Because we've always been the underdog, because we've always been few, always been not very powerful, we've had a great tradition of working together. And I hope to continue that with personal relationships and also at the denominational level. As a student here, you took two degrees, if I remember. That's correct. You took the MA in historical theology, but you also graduated with a Master of Divinity degree. And that reflects a parallel interest, and that in actual pastoral ministry of meeting with God's people, preaching the word, administering the sacraments, visiting them in the hospital, and catechizing the young people, and all of the things that make up being a pastor. And when we come back after this break, I want you to uh, reflect a little bit with us about what it was that drove you on the one hand to pursue advanced academic training, but also on the other hand to commit yourself to a life of service to the visible institutional church. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary California, on the benefits of our new residential village. 
Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So how did you discover your calling to be a minister? Well, it goes way back to before I started my undergraduate education. Became very interested in the things of God and in Scripture. Just became voracious in my appetite for Scripture, theology, and so forth. So I did my undergraduate degree at Moody Bible Institute, where I left a roaring dispensationalist, <laughs> but there encountered the doctrines of grace, which I had never heard growing up in my Baptist church. And so began to dip my toe in to the Reformed world, but still remained an ardent dispensationalist. But it was at Moody that I was really confirmed in my desire to go into ministry full time, to go into the pastoral ministry. And after a year and a half at a dispensational seminary, all of the dispensationalism was wrung out of me. And by God's grace, I ended up at Westminster, California, where my call to ministry was confirmed. Not only my internal call, it was certainly strengthened after I arrived at Westminster and joined a Reformed church for the first time and really finally felt at home. After many years of being a Christian, I finally felt at home in a Reformed church, and I haven't regretted that a day since. So my internal call was strengthened, but also the external call with the elders, the ministers in the Reformed Church, recognizing God's call on my life and then having that confirmed was very comforting to me, very assuring to me that this wasn't just my personal quest, but that the church also recognized God's call in my life. So I hear in you a passion for history, a passion for good theology, passion for ecumenicity, genuine Reformed ecumenicity, but I also hear in you a passion for the visible institutional church. It's common to set those things against each other, as if you can be interested in those things, but not the church, or you can be interested in the church, but not those things. How do you keep all those things together? Well, the church is where it all happens. And to what else would we devote our lives? I was just speaking to one of the members of our congregation yesterday that I was so excited at Westminster to get to the course on the doctrine of the church because all of the theology we had learned up to that point culminates here. It culminates in ecclesiology. This is where it happens. This is where primarily God is active in the world. So where else would we rather be? And all of the historical theology, all of our systematic theology, our exegesis, everything has its place in the church. This is the lab, so to speak. All of this wonderful stuff becomes real in the life of the church. And it's glorious to see. It's glorious to see lives transformed, 
people coming to the knowledge of Christ. It's glorious to see covenant children raised up in the church, make profession of faith. It's glorious to see the depth, understanding of God as they grow deeper and deeper in their understanding of God and love for him through the weekly worship, the ordinary means of grace. Nothing outlandish, nothing spectacular from a human perspective, but the ordinary means of grace, week to week, word and sacrament, growing, strengthening, deepening, that love for God in the members of the church. It's absolutely glorious. And so all of these things, my other pursuits, my work in historical theology and so forth, is only there to serve the church, to benefit the church. And the institutional church is, again, the primary place where God is working. If we know anything about church history, it's not the sporadic, impulsive movements that have sprung up throughout church history that have really brought lasting impact to the world. It has been the institutional church. It's not very flashy. Sometimes it's not very exciting, but it is effectual. And God has his plan. He's expanding his kingdom to the ends of the earth through this institution. And one thing that my studies in church history have confirmed in me is God's sovereign hand of protection on the church. Some people study church history. They see all the colorful characters, all the sinful men, and they think, wow, this is all just a racket. It's all phony. It's all a power grab. But I've come to the exact opposite conclusion. Of course, it is filled with sinful people. There's no doubt. But despite that, God has still preserved his church throughout history. Despite those within the church, our best efforts to help God out, even in a sinful way like Abraham and Hagar trying to help God out, or those from outside the church trying to destroy the church. At every point, God has preserved his people and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we can have supreme confidence that his mission will continue to the ends of the earth and we can be a part of it. I want to go back to your experience of transitioning from American evangelicalism and specifically, I suppose, some sort of modified dispensationalism to becoming Reformed. Because you're not alone in this. We've had a number of students over the years who have gone through that very same progression, that very same transition. And I think it might be helpful for the listener to hear you describe what it's like to begin to question dispensational assumptions and convictions and to begin to look at historic confessional reform theology. So let's go back over that a little bit. Walk us through what happened. For example, was it that made you begin to question the truth or the legitimacy of the dispensationalism that you'd been taught? Yes, what it's like is horribly disconcerting because you feel as if the world is being pulled out from under you. What I thought I knew and was sure of suddenly became not so sure, and I didn't truly know where to turn. But the biggest issue, I think, was that I had not received a fair presentation of covenant theology. Covenant theology was always caricatured, presented in a very simplistic way, very shallow way, and we never read them. We never read Burkhoff. We never read Bovink. We never read Mike Horton in my dispensational institutions. We only read our guys, Dallas Seminary grads. And so I never was truly exposed 
to covenant theology in its fullness. And for me, it started by seeing the holes in dispensationalism. Because we only gave a facile approach to covenant theology, we spent much more time in the positive presentation of dispensationalism. But the more I was exposed to dispensationalism and the deeper I went into it, the more I saw its inconsistencies. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. That's what I wanted to ask you about. What was it specifically as you're you know, hearing dispensationalism, studying it, reading it, that began to raise questions in your mind that would cause you to look for some alternative? Well, one of the biggest things was I never knew what to do with the Old Testament law. What do I do with the Mosaic law in dispensationalism? It basically becomes just a guide. It's a good moral guide, but it's not authoritative in any way. And it certainly doesn't apply to us today. We're not under the Mosaic law in any sense whatsoever, at least as I was taught. And so I never really knew what to do with it. So then the entire Old Testament becomes just moral example. Sure, of course, there are prophecies of Christ and other things like that. But the majority of the Old Testament in its substance, when you hear that taught and preached in a dispensational church, at least in my experience, was moral example. And in fact, we were actually, in my churches, we very rarely went to the Old Testament. <laughs> 99% of the sermons were from the New Testament because that was old. You know, they build a brick wall between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, and really even between the end of the Gospels and the first of Acts. And so that is a completely different thing for the dispensationalists than it is for Reformed theology. It is a different people of God, Old Testament Israel, two peoples of God and the church under a different form of salvation. It depends on how far into dispensationalism, what flavor you go. So that was one of the biggest things. I couldn't make sense of the Old Testament. And finally, when I came to a Reformed understanding, it was so glorious to be able to make sense of my Bible. I didn't have to chop it in half. And I could look to the Old Testament and see Christ on every page. This was another major revelation. Christ is not in the Old Testament, for the most part, for the dispensationalists. You have maybe two Messianic Psalms in Psalm 22, Psalm 110, maybe, not too sure about 22 or 110, but probably two Messianic Psalms. And I came to a Reformed understanding, they're all Messianic Psalms, and not just the Psalter. Every page of the Old Testament proclaims Christ. And so coming to that understanding and seeing the Christocentric, I don't mean that in a technical way, the Christ-centered understanding of all of Scripture was tremendous. What was it you first read when you began exploring Reformed theology? Well, I read Louis Burkhoff, got a fuller understanding of covenant theology. I read Michael Horton in uh, God of Promise. I think now it's called Introduction to Covenant Theology. And those two works really were the gateway into the full, broad world of covenant theology that uh, I came to love. So most of it was I wanted to know for myself, even before I had abandoned dispensationalism, I wanted to know for myself firsthand. I wanted to read these guys and know, is my dispensational seminary giving me an accurate representation of covenant theology? I had to know for myself and investigate for myself. And once I did, I realized I wasn't getting the truth from my seminary. And how they caricatured covenant theology was not really how covenant theology presented itself. And so that was the main catalyst for driving me to research and investigate covenant theology. So here you are at a well-known dispensational seminary, and your convictions are beginning to shift because you're reading Reformed theology, you're reading scripture, you're engaging it in a new way 
directly, personally, and you're starting to think, well, I need to go to another school. How did you find Westminster Seminary, California? Well, I had heard of Westminster when I was a student at Moody. I talked to Mark McVeigh. I remember speaking with him. He's our vice president for admissions. Yes. And I remember speaking with him when he came to Moody. Obviously, I'd made the wrong choice initially and didn't... uh, (laughs) Te absolvo. Yeah, thank you. I didn't hear his recruitment, truly. So Westminster was on my radar, and I certainly had great respect for the seminary and its reputation. And as I was looking to receive a true reformed education, I knew that I couldn't get it on my own. I knew I needed reformed theology. I knew I needed to leave dispensationalism. And I knew that I couldn't get all that I needed to get simply by reading Burkhoff myself. I had to go to the font. I had to receive it from the source. And so I knew I had to get a Reformed Seminary education. And so by God's providence, I was not far geographically at the time from Westminster, California, and uh, contacted Mark McVeigh again. And he remembered me, actually, surprisingly, and came for a visit and knew that I had arrived at the place I needed to be. And actually, you were my first on-campus contact then when I came from my campus visit, and God confirmed that this was the right thing. And you stayed anyway. Yeah, yeah. shockingly, you didn't drive me away. (laughs) (laughs) And so here you are now, graduated, you've been out for six years, and beginning your pastoral ministry through this internship at uh, Merrimack Presbyterian Church in Andover, north of Boston. What is, now that you're engaging in it in a full-time way and preparing for a call, what is pastoral ministry like? How are you finding it now that you're doing it full-time? It's tremendous. It's more rewarding than I could have imagined. It's more rigorous than I could have imagined. I'm still very slow in sermon prep so far, getting a little better. But again, devoting myself full-time to the church is very rewarding. The most rewarding thing a man can do with his life. Right now, we've been going through in Sunday school, I've been teaching through the Westminster Larger Catechism, and we've come to the sacraments and talking about baptism and Lord's Supper and seeing people really grasp a reformed understanding of baptism is so encouraging and rewarding. And we have many ex-Catholics in our congregation being outside of Boston, one of the Catholic strongholds in America, and seeing as I attempt to articulate the differences between Roman Catholic understanding of the sacraments and a reformed understanding of the sacraments and seeing the light turn on in their eyes, appreciating to a new level the biblical understanding of the sacraments and all that God does through them. And now that they can distinguish between their past and their present has been so satisfying. And just seeing how God has shaped the congregation, he's grown the congregation in our time here. We've been very blessed. We have a wonderful congregation And they've been great to me and to my wife and to my child now. And it's been a tremendous experience. How did Westminster Seminary California prepare you to be where you are now and to do what you're doing now, which is engaging in pastoral ministry with God's people? It, uh... I don't want to say this about myself, but as uh, Jay Gresson Machen said, we train men to be experts in the Bible. And certainly I wouldn't claim to be an expert in the Bible, but I hope I'm on the way. And Westminster certainly put me on that path, gave me the tools that I needed to become an expert in the Bible, to understand Scripture and all its infinite facets, to understand, of course, the theology that comes out of Scripture, and then to be able to communicate that communicate God's truth to his people 
in a Christ-honoring way that's also clear and simple in the best sense. Not simplistic, but simple for people. We haven't been trained at Westminster to display our theological acumen, even though our theological acumen is rigorous. It is uh, robust. We are trained very well in theology. But when we teach, it's not to display that. It's to communicate God's truth in the simplest way possible to all of God's people, to be clear so that everyone from the smallest child can understand God's truth for them. And so that has been excellent in my preparation for ministry. Very thankful for my training at Westminster. Every day I'm reminded of something that I had in seminary that I'm now using in the ministry in our church. I think I've been very well prepared for life in the church. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.